You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, Sean, DJ Jesus 72, Lee, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, The Snarlin' Sea Dog, Hangman Strain, John, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Vanderwood, Richard, Noah, Infamous Florida Man, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Keelhaw Chris, Carcos, Sean, Rotary Coast, M.D., Seth, Ghost 750X, Lost Again, The Navigator, Vasios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hayfay, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, The Snarlin' Sea Dog, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. We've been introducing a lot of new pirates recently. I've been throwing a lot of names at you. I've tried to keep it reasonable, but you do what you can. Today, though, we're going to continue that trend of throwing new names at you by introducing two, three, four new pirates. We're going to begin today with a man named David Williams. Now, the early days of Williams' story are a lot more detailed than most of the other pirates we've been discussing recently, and that should make us all just a little bit suspicious. This guy has a lot of characterization in his story, which, to me, suggests that it's probably partly fictitious. I mean, listen to his introduction here. In A General History of the Pirates, Volume 2, the chapter on David Williams begins, This man was born in Wales, of very poor parents. He was never esteemed among the pirates, perhaps on account of his ignorance of letters, for, as he had no education, he knew as little of sailing a ship as he did of history and natural philosophy. He was of a morose, sour, unsociable temper, and resented as an affront what a brave and more knowing man would not think worth notice. But he was not cruel, 
Neither did he turn pirate from a wicked or avaricious inclination, but by necessity. When he was grown a lusty lad, he would see the world and go seek his fortune, as the term is among country youths who think fit to withdraw themselves from the subjection of their parents. End quote. Morose, sour, unsociable, and lusty. Yeah, I like this guy. This is episode 329, A Lusty Lad. Now that's an unusually detailed introduction, especially in this book. Now, I'm not a literary analyst. That's a job that requires a toolkit I just don't have. But there are people out there, trained and educated, who can read a passage and then compare that to another passage and say with a fair bit of certainty if they had been written by the same person. That takes an eye that I just don't have. But I have read a decent bit of writing from the late 17th and early 18th century, including more than a little bit of Daniel Defoe's work. And there's just something about the way that this chapter is written. It reminds me a lot of the first chapter in the book, that on James Misson a chapter that's unequivocally fictional. They share a kind of pretension, kind of a purple prose, you know, a lot of $10 words in there. And they remind me, if I'm being honest, of Daniel Defoe. There's a little bit of Robinson Crusoe in this, but more than that, there's a lot of Captain Singleton in these chapters. And I'm not qualified to say anything with any certainty here, but... I do know that Daniel Defoe was writing a huge amount of fiction during these years of his life, and he was writing a lot of it under a ton of different pen names. So maybe, despite the fact that I don't think Daniel Defoe was responsible for Volume 1 at all, maybe he wrote a couple of chapters here in Volume 2. And whoever wrote that passage certainly had some ideas about what the pirates were really like. You know, he said that Williams was never esteemed among the pirates on account of his ignorance of letters, assuming that most pirates could read, and that they'd look down on some poor, uneducated country boy who didn't know how to peruse a book. I mean, that's just disconnected from reality. All of which is to say that a good chunk of what we're going to talk about today is almost certainly fiction. Not all of it. Eventually, David Williams is going to interact with some real pirates, and the story is going to have to tone itself down a bit. Nevertheless, that fiction is, in part, worth talking about. When he left home, our lusty young Welshman got a job on board a coastal merchant, and there he learned the business of sailing. Just a man before the mast, you know, the common day-to-day -day work that keeps a ship running, nothing fancy here. But in the early 1690s, David Williams signed up to sail on an East Indiaman called Mary. The Mary was planning a voyage from London that would then round the Cape, head over to India, and then head back home. The voyage went well enough. They made it round the Cape, they made it to India, they bought and sold whatever they were there to buy and sell, and then they began to head home. But as they approached Madagascar on the way back, they needed to collect some water. The book says that they stopped off on the east coast of Madagascar at about 20 degrees latitude south. If that's accurate, 
The mouth of the Manangeri River is found at just about the 20th parallel south. The Mary put down a boat to go to shore with eight or ten men aboard. They were sent to fill up water barrels, but when they got close to the coast, the boat had a tough time actually reaching the shoreline. The water was pretty choppy, it kept getting kind of tossed back. So the man in charge of collecting the water ordered Williams and one other strong swimmer to hop overboard, swim to shore, and find somewhere that they would be able to make it in close. Now, if I were in this position, in this boat that cannot currently get to shore, and someone tells me to jump overboard and swim to the coast, the, you know, the place that the boat can't get to, I think I'd say no. And I might catch a beating for it, but I don't think I'm going to do that. However, Williams and his companion did as ordered, and do you want to guess what happens next? The wind turned, the water got even choppier, it became too dangerous to swim back to the boat, and then the boat left. It just headed back to the Mary. Now, the Mary hung around for a couple of hours, waiting for the waters to calm down, but... When they didn't, the Mary left. She just opened up her sails and departed. David Williams and his unnamed companion were abandoned on Madagascar, on an empty stretch of beach several thousand miles from home. The other guy despaired. You know, they had fresh water and fresh fruit, and Williams would, in short order, construct a bit of a shelter. But what they didn't have was hope. So that other guy, well, he died, probably, although the book doesn't say so, by his own hand. Which left David Williams all alone. But he wouldn't be alone for long. Just a few days later, a few locals showed up at Williams' camp. Now, we don't know for sure who these people were, but we can guess. Today, the mouth of the Monangeri River is home to the Antambaohaka people. Antambaohaka tradition holds that they had at one point been part of a much larger kingdom, the Antaimoro people. But when the Antaimoro were colonized by Arabic explorers, the Antambaohaka people split from their former kingdom. Now, most of this information comes down to us from Alexander Hamilton's survey of the East Indies, and some of that is corroborated by Woods Rogers' later book. But both books tend to focus on ethnicity, which was common at the time, but in the case of Madagascar, it is kind of important. See, the Antaimoro people had some distinctly Arabic ethnic features, but the Antambaohaka people were black Africans. They didn't have those Arabic traits. And there were some pretty distinct ethnic, cultural, and linguistic divisions there, divisions that led to a lot of conflict. Shortly after, whoever found David Williams did so, a neighboring kingdom invaded, which I assume to be the Antaimoro people. Whoever the invaders were, though, they took David Williams captive. He was taken to their king, who interviewed the young man, took him in, treated him pretty well, and then gave him a musket. Quote, 
Such arms were better in the hands of a white man than in those of any of his subjects who were not so much used to them. End quote. Now, there might be something to that. You know, if they only had a couple of old muskets not in great repair, they might not be too familiar with the use of them. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot of white savior stuff going on here. I mean, everybody here on the east coast of Madagascar just seems to think that Williams is just just the best, the, the most amazing person they've ever met. He's strong, he's brave, he's handsome, and fighting the enemy at the front lines. We're going to skip over most of that, but it will explain everything that's about to happen. Shortly after David Williams was taken in by this second Malagasy king, another kingdom invaded. These new invaders also took the musket-wielding white man captive. The leader of this invading army was something of an emperor in the region, that is to say he led an alliance of other smaller sub-kingdoms. And he was so impressed with David Williams' prowess in battle that he made him a commander of his army. Williams was given the task of training and then leading a company of musketeers, all of whom were armed with much better muskets than the one Williams had been using, probably acquired from Adam Baldridge. This state of affairs lasted longer than most, a couple of years for David Williams. But then yet another war broke out. Williams led his men in that war in pitched battle into a daring, dashing assault on the enemy, he stood at the front lines, resolutely felling dozens of men. However, the numbers were overwhelming. His musketeer brigade was cut down, and Williams ran. He ditched his musket at the base of a tree, and then climbed up into the tree where the enemy couldn't reach him easily, and surrendered. And he was scared here that he was going to be, and this is the phrase that the book uses, cut to pieces. But once again, Williams was captured, taken before the king. The king had an interview, liked the guy, took him in, and made him a commander of... You get the idea. This just keeps happening. This is the fourth king, by the way. But then, due to his fame as a leader of men, dashing, heroic, all of that, Williams was called upon by an even greater king, the biggest and strongest king. An emperor above emperors, with muscles on his muscles, a giant harem full of beautiful maidens, and an absolutely massive... Hey, you get the idea. He's made out to be the most powerful man in the entire region. And this king loved David Williams. The two men really got along. However, their relationship didn't last long. Another man called upon this great emperor and told him to have David Williams present himself. This would be the sixth leader in as many years to have David Williams present himself. Now, he wasn't a king, at least that's not the word that the book uses. Instead, it calls him a general. And you know, I've been trying to figure out who all of these kings are that have been fighting with one another, claiming David Williams as their leader of musketeers. And I can't really do it. There's not enough details in the text, and moreover, most of it's probably not true. But by 1698, when Williams is called upon by this general, the author has to square this fable he's been laying out with reality. 
this general was a real person and someone we've met before. His name was Abraham Samuel. And of course we all remember Abraham Samuel, right? He was that man enslaved on the island of Martinique who led a mass breakout and then joined up with the crew of Captain John Hoare aboard the John and Rebecca. He was on board the John and Rebecca when John Hoare had most of the white men from the crew on shore at St. Mary's. When the Malagasy rose up, killed John Hoare and all of his men, Abraham Samuel took the ship and sailed south. Horrible storm, wrecked on the beach, and took up residence at Fort Dauphin. Now there's a lot of drama when David Williams is taken before Abraham Samuel. And to be clear, the book never calls him Abraham Samuel, but that's who they mean. For example, Samuel asks if David Williams is in fact a free man, and the king informs him that yes, he's not a slave. And Samuel says, well then, where are his slaves? And this king, you know, the most mighty of emperors, has to send along a couple of dozen enslaved people as his retinue. Which might actually have happened, or might not. Like most of this part of the story, it's pretty dubious. But what we can say for certain is that David Williams set sail sometime in the early 1690s. He was abandoned at Madagascar and wound up at Fort Dauphin by about 1698. He stayed there for about a year and a half until, in 1700, Williams was picked up by an Englishman, a pirate named Evan Jones. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Evan Jones was a sailor out of New York in the 1690s. In 1698, he signed up to sail on board a slaving ship out of London, headed for Madagascar. This was one of the very early legal slaving voyages undertaken by a private enterprise. The Royal Africa Company had only just been demonopolized, but they still held the west coast of Africa in a pretty tight grip. So when their ship, the Beckford Galley, set sail, they were heading to the east. In Pirates of the Eastern Seas, author Charles Gray writes, quote, The captain was one of those brutal shipmasters so common at that period. His ill-treatment and semi-starvation of the scanty crew during the voyage to St. Augustine's rendered the men absolutely ripe for anything desperate. 
end quote. When they arrived at St. Augustine Bay, Beckford Galley met a clan of drunken, itinerant, heavily armed beach bums there. And I know we've made a lot of fuss about the pleasures of the region, what later writers would dub Libertalia, but it's with good reason. What we're talking about here is basically the region near the modern city of Toliara. There's a beach at Toliara called Ifati Beach that is world famous for its beauty, its warm waters and soft sand, and naturally, the women. It's paradise, even today, and the pirates back then knew it was paradise. Now, this group of drunken louts lazing around on the beach, they all looked to a man named John Ryder as their leader. John Ryder isn't exactly the best documented pirate in history, but we know a bit. He began his career, at least his East Indian career, as a sailor in the East India Company. For a time, he served as a gunnery advisor for the Grand Mughal, Aurangzeb. But in 1696, he was serving aboard the East India frigate Mocha, when some new sailors on board the Mocha, namely James Kelly and Ralph Stout, led a mutiny against the East India Company officers, John Ryder was one of the men who sided with the pirates. When Robert Culliford took command of the Mocha, Ryder stayed on, and he sailed under Culliford for a few years, but then, in 1699, Thomas Warren offered the king's pardon to the pirates at St. Mary's. Last time, we talked about Nathaniel North and his crew of men who escaped in a longboat. Well, John Ryder led his own cadre of pirates away from St. Mary's to St. Augustine Bay. They'd been living there for a few months when the Beckford Galley arrived. Now, the men of Beckford Galley disembarked there on the beach and... They saw these drunken bums living a life of idleness and ease, of liberty and pleasure. And all of that looked pretty great. If you were a man like Evan Jones and you'd been sailing on board the Beckford Galley for several months, spending every day starving and often getting beaten, and you see these men just sitting around drinking rum punch with gorgeous Malagasy women on their arms, well... I think most of us would make a similar decision. Evan Jones, in concert with John Ryder, led a mutiny against the officers of Beckford Galley. Now, there really wasn't much violence involved in this mutiny. Frankly, the numbers were just too overwhelming for that to be necessary. One day, the officers emerged on deck and found the whole of the crew standing there, armed, and Evan Jones informed them that they were taking the ship. The mutineers informed the officers that any of the officers present would be welcome to join them, except for the captain. Even if they chose not to do so, the officers would be allowed to live and to leave, except for the captain. The captain was going to face justice. The purser was a man named Andrew Somerville, and he declined to join, as did most of the senior officers. Those officers were given a boat and allowed to go wherever they wanted to. But the captain, the brutal shipmaster, he was taken ashore 
and killed. And just for today, let's pretend that this killing was quick and clean. You know, no suffering. Sometimes it's nice to pretend. The mutineers, now that they had a ship and were free to do as they pleased, discussed what they wanted to do. John Ryder had plenty of tales to tell about his adventures as a man of fortune, and the crew thought all of this sounded absolutely capital. So they elected Evan Jones as their new captain. John Ryder was elected quartermaster, and they renamed the Beckford Galley Tulir. Tulir was the name of the settlement there, where they were all staying. It's what, in 1700, the modern city of Toliara was called. So the pirate ship Tulir set off on a cruise. However, they didn't have much luck. They captured a couple of tiny little ships with a fair amount of cargo on board, but, you know, no treasure. So they cruised over to the east coast of Madagascar for Fort Dauphin. They planned on trading with Abraham Samuel for some supplies there, but instead they found a ship waiting for them. Now, it's worth note right here that Fort Dauphin had a pretty amazing harbor and actually had a proper port, you know, like docks that the French had built back when they constructed Fort Dauphin. It was something that was a rarity in that part of the world. It turned out to be a slave ship called Prophet Daniel. The Prophet Daniel had been commissioned by a trading firm in New York, a firm belonging to Anziel von Swyden and Valentin Kruger. The ship's factor, that is, you know, the business manager on board, he was Valentin's nephew, named John Kruger. In addition to his duties as factor, he also served as the cargo master on board. And to be clear, this was a slaving ship, so that means handling all of the human beings they were here to buy. This is all worth mentioning, because John Kruger would prove to be an amazingly successful slave trader. In a couple of years' time, he would buy two ships of his own, and by 1712, he would be made a New York alderman. By 1739, he was the mayor. And in case you're wondering, yes, Abraham Samuel, formerly enslaved, was now trading in human beings, which seems a bit odd. And I don't like to ascribe intentions to people, but to me it seems like Samuel wasn't super into it. From a certain point of view, slave trading would have been an act of self-preservation for the people there at Fort Dauphin. As something of an independent body, he provided a service that was of use to both the French and English in the region. But if he grew a conscience and decided to stop trading in slaves, well the French might just decide they wanted their fort back. Captain Jones hailed the men on board Prophet Daniel and invited the captain to join him ashore for a feast. Now, the captain declined. He wanted to stay aboard. But John Kruger and most of the officers and many of the men decided to attend. Now, there's a question that's been bugging me here. This ship, the Prophet Daniel, sailed out of New York. The Beckford Galley also sailed out of New York. They left at about the same time and arrived at about the same time. I don't think they were sailing together. I think they both just caught that first wave of legal slave trading. But they knew each other, right? 
I mean, some of the men literally did know each other, as we'll see in a second. But the men of Prophet Daniel had to know that this ship was in the region and probably knew her captain, who was now, you know, dead. So maybe this isn't just a chance meeting here at Fort Dauphin. Maybe this was planned. Maybe they were there to, you know, purchase a bunch of slaves together. Either way, though, the men of the Tulir Galley, formerly Beckford Galley, had an advantage. See, they looked just the same as the men from the Prophet Daniel. A bit tan, sure, bearded, absolutely, but they still had their respectable English clothes. They looked like sailors on board a slaving merchant, which is what they had been until just a couple of weeks earlier. Some of the men on board, you know, John Ryder and his lot, well, they weren't just tan, they were sun-dark. Their beards and their hair were long, bleached by the sun, and many of them would have had piercings after the Malagasy tradition. They also would no longer have had anything even resembling English clothing. In short, they looked like pirates. But those men would have been hidden below decks, for now it was all just the relatively respectable sailors in view. Now, they had to explain why their captain was dead, I'm sure. We don't have a good explanation for it, but, you know, disease happens, and that's a fairly easy thing to claim. And with these preliminaries out of the way, they got down to business. Abraham Samuel brought his retinue down. First, there were a lot of people there to serve food. Also, his men, who had formerly served with him on board the John and Rebecca, and one white guy, which was a little bit weird. The only white guy from Fort Dauphin. As we know, that would have been David Williams. But soon enough, the men were sitting down around roaring fires to enjoy roasted meat and rum punch. And, as we said, some of the men knew each other. A bunch of them knew Evan Jones, who grew up in Westchester, along with a bunch of the other guys from Prophet Daniel. If there had been any fear or trepidation about the nature of this ship, the fact that they knew this guy and some of the other men as well, well, that laid their fears to rest. But, of course, it shouldn't have. While the men were all feasting and toasting each other and having a grand old time, the pirates on board, the men under John Ryder, well, they slipped out of the Tulir Galley. They lowered boats into the water, rowed over to the Prophet Daniel, and climbed aboard. There were still a few men on board, including the captain, but it appears that if they were keeping a watch, they were watching the shore, waiting to see if those men enjoying the feast were up to anything nefarious. They didn't even know that these pirates were on board the Tulir Galley. But then, all of a sudden, out of the darkness on deck, there they were everywhere, pointing their guns at you. Now, if everything had gone according to plan, they would have claimed the ship without anybody on shore being the wiser. However, somebody on board the Prophet Daniel got off a shot. Her crewmen, who were ashore, well, they noticed. The crew of Prophet Daniel jumped to their feet, maybe a little unsteady, but they wanted to know what was going on. Some of them ran toward the harbor, to their ship. It was here they realized they'd been double-crossed. Abraham Samuel had cut a deal with Evan Jones. Samuel's men drew guns and swords and took John Kruger and all the rest captive. And that was it. The game was done. The ship had been taken. The deal went down a little bit like this. Jones and the pirates would get to take all the supplies on board water, food, that kind of thing. 
but they also got to take the slaves. They would be traded to the Malagasy back in St. Augustine Bay. Abraham Samuel, meanwhile, got to keep the ship and the guns to man his fort. However, in the deal that was struck, he did have to give up his favorite companion, David Williams. Williams didn't want to stay any longer. He elected to join up with the men of the Tulir Galley. The Tulir Galley returned to St. Augustine Bay, the closest thing any of them had to a home at this point. They needed to careen their ship, though. The hull was in bad shape. And remember that careening required the crew to beach the ship parallel to the waterline. Then they would tip her over at low tide so they could scrub the hull and make repairs. But it went wrong for the men of Tulir Galley. In attempting to beach her, they broke the ship's back. And that's what they call it, breaking the back, or sometimes breaking the spine. You know, that's the center part of the hull that kind of holds the two sides together. And breaking that ruined the ship. They didn't have the capability to repair her. So the men were stranded. Now, Tulir also later called Libertalia, was maybe the best place they could hope to be stranded, but that didn't change the fact they were still stranded. But in this case, not for long. Remember last time, George Booth, right before he sailed his brand new ship, the Speaker, right before he took her to Zanzibar, he stopped off at St. Augustine Bay to pick up some men. And I know that it might seem like there's just some kind of unlimited supply of men waiting in the wings there at St. Augustine Bay, but there isn't. And if anything today, I hope I've been able to illustrate that, even if it's one of those pirates that isn't a main character, all of these people have interesting, exciting, intriguing stories that brought them to the life they are currently living. You know, once Evan Jones and John Ryder sign up to serve on board the Speaker, they disappear. There's nothing else on them. Maybe they died there in Zanzibar, or maybe not. Maybe there just wasn't anything else worth writing about. David Williams, though, is going to stay in our story for a little while. Next time, we're going to continue on with David Williams, as well as Tom Collins, Thomas White, Nathaniel North, and John Bowen. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who helps to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings and reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. You all make it possible. So thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like Grey History, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you'd like to check them out, you can find them on YouTube, Facebook, Bandcamp, or anywhere fine music is found. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Shake down the dreams and 
Tonight. 